Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Each week, we explore beliefs shaping our world, from the big events to the unseen forces that may be influencing our personal relationships, attitudes, and experiences. I've been thinking a lot about the unseen, especially this week. I celebrated a milestone birthday, and it sparked a lot of reflection about my own evolution, the things I have learned and unlearned. It's one of the reasons I am so grateful for this job, because each and every conversation gives me something to ponder, especially on subjects that are fraught with emotion and deep passion. Conversations that make me question exactly what do I believe and what do I really know. It's deeply personal, and it's not often linear. Because at the end of the day, we are not linear. Sometimes moving forward means turning around, shifting our perspective, and sitting in a space where we may feel some discomfort. In a world that is deeply polarized and divided, pausing to listen and reflect takes courage. And for some, it carries a risk that's much bigger, making us vulnerable to accusations we may not be prepared for. This week, we explore these themes with Dean Isakaroff, his journey asking difficult questions about his national identity, the actions of his country, and how his spiritual beliefs and faith fits into it all. Reporter Shana Shaley brings us this story from the new podcast series, Sacred Steps. This is Dean. I'm not religious. I'm not, I don't believe in God, but I feel very Jewish all the time. Dean Zakharoff wears small round glasses. He has bushy brown hair, bright eyes. The night I visited his Tel Aviv apartment, he opened the door for me barefoot in cut-off denim shorts and a thin t-shirt with a picture of Cookie Monster on the front. He was on the phone, working. When he's not talking on his phone, it's dinging with notifications pretty much constantly. Dean is the 27-year-old spokesman for a member of Israel's parliament. We sit at Dean's kitchen table, drinking cups of soda water. He rolls cigarettes as he tells me his take on Judaism. The best story that I learned from Judaism, it's uh, when Abraham's supposed to leave everything and go on this journey. And what he does in this story, he stands up and the first thing he does is he smashes his father's idols and then he goes out for his own journey. This is the forefather of Judaism, and he stands up and smashes the idols. That's the kind of religion that I can subscribe to and identify with. The stories Dean heard growing up in Jerusalem about his family had a similar mythic tone. These were stories about his grandparents, who fled anti-Semitism in Europe for Palestine before the state of Israel was established in 1948. His grandfather fled from Uzbekistan and fought in an underground militia to help create a Jewish state that would protect Jews from persecution. 
Dean's grandma told tales about hiding weapons from British soldiers. So you have one grandpa who was like this freedom fighter. And then my dad was in the Foreign Service. It was, it's like very clear to us that we're part of this place. Israel was Dean's place, his family's place. And he was ready to fight for it, too. But I'm not going to start singing it now. <laughs> the Israeli anthem used to get me um, extremely excited, like goosebumps excited, like this is my home excited. When Dean was growing up, his religion was all about Zionism. He felt an almost gravitational desire to build and protect the Jewish state. My Jewish identity was based completely around nationalism. My Jewish nationalism. I wasn't religious. I had Zionism. That's the kind of Jew I was. I wasn't orthodox. I wasn't secular. I wasn't... I was a Zionist. Most Israelis have to enter the military at age 18. Right after high school, Dean joined an elite unit. He trained hard during his first year, practicing hand-to-hand combat and using weapons, learning army Arabic. Stop or I'll shoot. Which is just open the door. Lift your hands. Take your shirt off. Turn around. Take your pants off. Give the keys to your car. Turn the car Turn off. Turn the lights on. Turn the lights off. Uh, men to the right. The higher-ups chose him to become a commander. I was like, ah, I've won the lottery. This is like the best. This is exactly what I wanted. Dean's first assignments were in the West Bank the Palestinian territories Israel has occupied since 1967. He and his troops raided villages, patrolled streets, made arrests. There's one time where uh, one of my officers were driving outside of the uh, village. He tells us to open up the doors of the armored vehicle, and then he gives us a box of flashbang grenades, and he tells us to start throwing them outside of the vehicle into the village in the middle of the night. And when we asked him why we had to do that, and he says, so they know who owns this place. One day, Dean and his soldiers caught some guys throwing stones in the Palestinian city of Hebron, surrounded by Israeli settlements. The guys were protesting exactly the kind of behavior Dean was talking about. When the soldiers went to arrest the guys, one of them gave Dean a hard time. I think I pointed to my gun and I said, don't make me do something I don't want to do. With his knee, Dean battered the man in his chest and face. Until he was like half passed out and bloody. I don't remember if he screamed. I don't remember if he cried. I don't remember if he was silent. I just remember it worked. Dean grabbed the bleeding man by the back of his neck and put his hands behind his back to cuff him. And, you know, you hear those clicks of the Ziplocs. I was, like, smiling. We were all happy. We got some action. We did what we had to do. That summer, Israel declared war on the Gaza Strip, a Palestinian-governed, resource-poor piece of land on the Mediterranean Sea. The Israeli army would send Dean's troops there to find and destroy underground Hamas tunnels. Gaza is, like, the hornet's nest. That's what it's called. Kenzot. It's like, it's out of charted territory. Dean led his men into Gaza through fences in the middle of the night. When the sun rose, he saw chaos. No one knows where everyone's standing. 
um, and people start shooting at buildings and people are entering from the wrong places and you almost shoot um, people from your company because they're standing in the wrong place. It's a mess. Bulldozers were ripping up houses and farmland. Um, and there were a lot of like just dead animals stuck under the debris and it smelled horrible because it was hot. So imagine like like dead farm animals, that smell. Or even the live ones, which are dehydrated and just like walking around in a kind of daze. Cows, camels, donkeys, chickens. That was like a smell that you don't forget. The war killed some 2,200 Palestinians and 70 Israelis. Dean, he got to go home. My parents were scared. They had no idea what to do. Uh, they literally like warmed up a schnitzel and then they cut it for me <laughs> as if I was six years old. Then <laughs> they were like talking quietly. Like, Dean, is everything okay? Do you want some ketchup? Is everything all right? Dean ate his schnitzel and took a shower. Days passed. Dean slept a lot. He read a lot. The more time that went past, the more I felt the dissonance between me supposed to be feeling like I'm a hero because I was one of the soldiers that was inside um, and the incredible guilt. Our housekeeper, who was Palestinian, had a son named Tariq, who was in administrative detention and the accusation of throwing stones in East Jerusalem. So my mom and Tariq's mom, our housekeeper, Majda, they'd get together and like cry and like, where are our sons? What is happening here? After Dean's mom told him this story, she called up their housekeeper, Majda. She invited Dean over for dinner to meet her son, Tarek. I was excited, and also I was, it seemed like an adventure. Now, it's like less, it's like two kilometers away, driving less, but it's like a distance I never traveled for 24 years. And I meet Tarek, we go to the like neighborhood vegetable store, and then we sit down for dinner. There are like mixed feelings about me being there. Some people are more comfortable, some people are less. It was a beautiful dinner and just a family sitting there and I was sitting right in front of the door. I'm like asking someone to pass me the rice and we're eating and then I like take a look at the door and I realize that this is exactly what was happening right before every single time I barged in through a Palestinian door in the middle of their dinner or in the middle of the night. It's just people's lives being people's lives. Nothing made sense anymore. Dean didn't talk about it much, except with a close friend. One day over beer, that friend invited Dean to a lecture by a Palestinian, Basim Aramin. He has this amazing story of how he come to terms with nonviolence. One day, his daughter was walking home from school. She was around six years old, and she was shot in the head by a border police officer and killed. Basim was talking to Israeli students in an auditorium. And he's telling his story, and one of the kids raises his hands, and he asks, why is it that an Israeli soldier would shoot a kid in the head? Like, why would that happen? And then from the back of the room, I, like, raise my hand. Basim called on Dean to speak. Dean wasn't sure where he was going when he started talking to the room. 
but soon he was talking about his own experience as a soldier. And I started explaining to them about how I was, my soldiers were in a checkpoint one time and one of my sergeants ordered a soldier to shoot a rubber bullet, which instead of hitting the kid in the leg, hit him in the chest. While I was telling that story, my voice was shaking. And Bassam, what Bassam does after I talk about how soldiers shoot Palestinian kids is that he walks over to me while my voice is shaking with a glass of water and he gives it to me. I think that like I've never been worthy of so much compassion, but like the fact that he did that um, and then afterwards spoke to me after the lecture and we spoke a bit and he asked me about my background and what's going on. And he goes, uh, one day you'll join combatants for peace and uh, <laughs> you'll be an activist. <laughs> like, Bassam, I don't think so. <laughs> Weeks later, Dean met with the group Bassam had talked about, Combatants for Peace. It's a group of Palestinians and Israelis who've taken an active role in violence and now work together to talk and promote nonviolence in the region. Dean recalls his first meeting with Palestinians in this context. Like I kept looking at their pockets. I was always trained to do is like look at people's pockets to see if they're going to pull out a knife or something. But at those meetings, Dean really listened to Palestinians tell their stories. And for the first time, he was realizing that there were worlds of stories beyond the ones he'd grown up hearing about the heroic fight for a Jewish state. And I felt like the ground was just pulled out under my leg. Dean's religion had been orbiting around nationalism. But the more he learned from Palestinians the more holes he found in his steadfast faith in the noble and moral struggle for a Jewish homeland. So if I thought that I was going into the army to be my grandfather, the like freedom fighter who was fighting the British soldiers, and I found out I was like the British soldier. And that's hard to deal with. So if Dean no longer believed in taking up arms for the state of Israel, what did he really have? And suddenly you don't know where you're supposed to be. Um, or who you are exactly, or what story you're telling yourself anymore. Eventually, Dean met other veterans asking similar questions in an Israeli group called Breaking the Silence. A group of Israeli combat veterans calling themselves Breaking the Silence is now calling into question the official Israeli government version of... The veterans share their stories from their time in the military, and a lot of people really don't like it, including a lot of people in the government. There's a law called the Breaking the Silence Law that bans the group from speaking in public high schools. The only message of the group is, this is what we did, it's wrong. And I think that it's so controversial because it cuts straight to the core of our denial. Dean was sort of you know joining the organization then, and he gave this uh, excellent uh, interview, and I was like, you know, who, who is this kid? Um, and where did he come from? Avner Gavaryahu is the executive director of Breaking the Silence. When he heard Dean speaking to the press about his own testimony, Avner asked him to be the spokesperson. That was sort of a, a bold move. He didn't have a lot of experience. Dean was just 24 at the time. I'm Dini Sakharov. 
לפני שלוש שנים שירתתי כקצין ולוחם בחברון. About half a year into the job, he was out with friends in Jerusalem. They were headed to a bar when Dean pulled out his phone and clicked on a Facebook notification. I was tagged on Facebook. <laughs> and see this video. The video shows Dean's testimony in front of a big group. Dean is describing the day he beat unconscious the young Palestinian man who was resisting arrest on the accusation of throwing stones. And then a man with a scruffy beard and fade haircut with the title Team Commander comes on the screen and says in Hebrew, it never happened. Another guy with the title Fighter to the Company says, Where did you come up with this stuff? And then, one by one, 12 soldiers look straight into the camera. Dean, I was your crew commander, and you're a liar. Dean Zakharov, I was your soldier, and you're a liar. Dean, I saw your testimony, and you're a liar. Dean, I was a fighter in your unit, and you're a liar. And it's one after another, and another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. These are guys you know. Some of these guys followed me into Gaza. It's not guys that I know. Some of these guys were like guys that I was shot out with. And the video is them calling me a liar, and then it ends with some text saying, you're either a liar or a criminal. When we come back, Shana Shaley continues the story, exploring how Dean deals with the repercussions of speaking out. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. We'll be right back after this short break. friends, I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show.
Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. We're listening to the story of Dina Sakharov, a former Israeli soldier who began questioning his role and relationship to Palestinians. He began to reckon with his power and his actions, speaking out and sharing his account of his time in the military, and specifically describing the tactics that he engaged in, along with other soldiers, tactics intended to instill fear. As Dean begins to speak out using social media, offering his version and account of what happened on the ground, the reaction is swift, one he did not expect. Accusations of betrayal from his fellow soldiers. Let's get back to the story. Here's producer Shana Sheely. One by one, 12 soldiers look straight into the camera. Dean, I was your crew commander, and you're a liar. Dean Zakharov, I was your soldier, and you're a liar. Dean, I saw your testimony, and you're a liar. Dean, I was a fighter in your unit, and you're a liar. And it's one after another, and another one, and another one, and another one. And another one. These are guys you know. Some of these guys followed me into Gaza. These is not guys that I know. Some of these guys were like guys that I was shot out with. And the video is them calling me a liar, and then it ends with some text saying you're either a liar or a criminal. Within 24 hours, the video reached radio and TV stations. It was everywhere. It got to the news. It was, it was big. And this thing keeps going and going on the internet. It like, doesn't stop. People are like writing posts and it's becoming viral. And suddenly like the security minister comments on it. And then the justice minister says that I should be investigated. A few days later... Police called Dean in on suspicion of aggravated assault. A felony which you can sit in jail for. And did you have the choice of taking back your testimony? Like, could you have just said, actually, I didn't really do that. Stop this investigation. Yeah, my lawyer um, told me that you should just shut up and it will go away. Now, obviously, they thought that they'd investigate me and I'd remain silent. And then they'd be able to say, well, he chickened out or... He's a liar. If the country believed he was a liar, it would undermine his entire organization, breaking the silence, and all of its veterans' testimonies. But if Dean maintained that he did assault someone, that would make him a criminal. Avner, the executive director of Breaking the Silence, didn't really know what to do. I spoke to Dean, and he really wanted to respond. It was very clear that this was a beginning of something uh, in the world, and this was a beginning of something for Dean. In April 2017, Dean declared in front of police investigators that he assaulted a Palestinian man. The investigators found a Palestinian man. That man said Dean never beat him up. So the investigators said Dean was lying, and they wouldn't put him on trial. Dean says he and Avner quickly realized what they needed to do. What we have to do right now is the investigation which the police weren't willing to do. 
and we have to start collecting evidence and trying to find witnesses and the victim and 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 prove that what I was talking about was the truth. So you have to prove that you committed this crime. Exactly. When Dean saw the photo of the Palestinian man the investigators had questioned, he realized it was the wrong guy. But that wasn't enough for the court to reopen the trial. Dean needed more evidence that he was telling the truth. He knew there was an Israeli human rights organization that gives cameras to Palestinians to document daily life in the territories. He gave that organization a range of dates, and they combed through every piece of footage between those dates. And we get a phone call, and I get rushed over to the lawyer's office. Uh, They open the computer. And we were all standing there, huddled around this small screen. We're, We're watching this footage, and we see Dean walking out of this alley with a bunch of soldiers. And then suddenly there's me and another guy holding the guy that I need, and I recognize him, and he's bruised in the face. There was Dean after he beat up the guy and paraded him through the streets with other soldiers. The video shows that. My immediate response was that I broke out crying. (laughs) I kept saying, sons of bitches, sons of bitches. With proof in hand, he got right to work. He called local journalists. And soon, the state attorney's office reopened the investigation. One of Israel's leading investigative journalism TV shows took up Dean's story. A few days before the TV show ran, the state attorney's office released a statement admitting the mistake of interrogating the wrong Palestinian man. And that's huge. It's the state attorney's office. Like, it's like very powerful people with a lot to lose who did not want to admit their fault. Did you ever find the right Palestinian? Well, New Year's Eve 2018, about to go out to a party, and I'm told that there's going to be an interview with the guy who I actually beat up. Israeli TV journalists had found the right Palestinian man. His name is Faisal Al-Natsha. And I sit there watching the news, and they're interviewing this guy's mother. She's talking about the trauma that her son went through. And they're interviewing him. And the second you have a Palestinian perspective inside of that, you realize how ridiculous it is. And, and I had to look this guy in the eyes and hear his account of it and hear his mother talking about what I did to her son. Did you ever interact with him or talk to him? No. Do you want to? No. I don't think he'd want to forgive me and I don't think it'd be a fair thing to ask for. Before the state closed its investigation, Dean left his job representing Breaking the Silence. He went to work as a spokesperson for Ayman Oda, leader of the third largest bloc in Israel's parliament. Oda wants a shared future with the full and equal participation for the Arab Palestinians who live in Israel and who have citizenship. He's also calling for an end to the Israeli occupation and the establishment of an independent Palestinian state. Dean works pretty much around the clock for Oda. As for his Judaism... Well, it took me a very long time to realize that I can be Jewish without being a Zionist. There's 
this restaurant he goes to when he gets stressed or lonely. He orders the like sour cherry, cherry soup, soup with, with the dumplings. dumplings with meat inside of them. Delicious. A traditional dish belonging to Bukhari Jews. Jews with ancestors from Central Asian countries like Uzbekistan, where Dean's grandparents came from. Eating it, he says, is his version of praying. No, because I'm serious. Because that's like, why do people pray? They just want to feel like they're connecting to something that people they love have done before them. They want to feel at home. They want to feel something familiar. They want to feel less alone. More than food connects Dean with his ancestors. I also feel like it's very Jewish to fight apartheid. There's something about Judaism which doesn't naturally lend itself to supremacy. There's something about Judaism which in its, in its and again, this is only my read of it, but in its core is, I don't know if existential is the word, as much as non, not materialistic. And when you're not materialistic because your God doesn't have a name or a body or a face, then you can't worship land and you can't worship flags and you can't worship symbols. You can try and do good to other people. Dean, with his public speaking and writing, his nonstop calls with journalists, his political activism, he's trying to do good for his people, for his country. For The Spiritual Edge, I'm Shana Sheely. Shana Sheely is a reporter who produced this story as part of a new international religion reporting project called Sacred Steps. It's produced in collaboration with KALW Spiritual Edge and the University of Southern California Center for Religion and Civic Culture. To hear more stories like this, check out the podcast. You can find it in your favorite podcast feed or visit thespiritualedge.org. When we come back, producer Kimberly Winston takes us on an exploration of a sacred anthem, Lift Every Voice. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices, I'm your host, Amreen Khan. Stay with us. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. This weekend is June 19th, and it's the first time that day will be a publicly recognized federal holiday. It marks the day in 1865 when Union soldiers, led by General Gordon Granger, arrived in the coastal city of Galveston, Texas, delivering General Order Number 3. It was to inform enslaved African-Americans that the Civil War had ended 
and that they were in fact free under the Emancipation Proclamation, signed by President Abraham Lincoln two years earlier. An end to slavery in the entire country waited until December 1865, when the 13th Amendment was formally adopted into the Constitution. But that day, June 19th, is significant. As the country celebrates and commemorates, we know that not only will folks gather, there will be food, there will also be music. And there's one song likely to be played in celebrations around the country. Lift Every Voice. Producer Kimberly Winston brings us the backstory about this song and its meaning. When I was a kid singing in my church choir, one of my favorite hymns was number 519 in the Methodist hymnal, Lift Every Voice and Sing. Lift every voice and sing Till again heaven rings Rings with the harmonies of liberty Let our rejoice I didn't sound like that, though. In the intervening years, I forgot all about the song until George Floyd was killed by a Minneapolis policeman and protests spread across the country. Somewhere in the fire hose of media coverage, I saw an interview with a young African-American woman describing a peaceful demonstration. She said something like, It was beautiful. We started to sing Lift Every Voice and Sing, and I looked around and all of these white people were singing it with us. How do they know the words to our black national anthem? That's when I knew this song has a story way bigger than my church, the only place I ever heard it. The song has a story that I, who am white, knew nothing about. I am Virgita Johnson. I'm an associate professor of ethnomusicology at the University of South Carolina. Professor Johnson teaches Lift Every Voice and Sing as part of her African-American sacred music class. She also plays a mean piano, violin, and the Ghanaian drums. Can you tell me the story of how this song came to be? Well, the story is um, really connected to two brothers, James Weldon Johnson and J. Roseman Johnson. The song actually was a poem first. James Weldon Johnson wrote the poem in 1900, and his brother set it to music in 1905. And so it initially was that. It was actually first publicly performed as a part of Abraham Lincoln's birthday celebration at an actual school. James Weldon Johnson and his younger brother, John Rosamond Johnson, were educators in segregated schools in Jacksonville, Florida, their hometown. Almost immediately, their song raced along the avenues of black life. It was sung at social gatherings, civic meetings, and anywhere else early 20th century African Americans met and worked in the Jim Crow South and beyond. They're all passing this song around, and it becomes formalized in things like protest meetings, in church meetings, for Black History Month, in different settings within the Black community because of the power of the words and the message it holds. The song has three verses, one each for the past, the present, and the future. It starts off full of rejoicing. There is liberty, there is faith, and there is hope. Then comes a lament, a stony road 
a chastening rod, and a bloody path marched by weary feet. The last verse, my favorite, is a prayer. A God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, will lead us into the light so that we may stand true to our native land. It's an anthem. In 1900, it was almost about to be 40 years after the end of the Civil War. And so we're looking at an African-American community that's now emancipated, but clearly not free. We're in the years, it's called the nadir of race in America. And, you know, Jim Crow and Jane Crow and all those things are happening. You're looking at the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and the racial violence that comes along with those organized hate groups, as well as just a day-to-day um, survival. And so when you see them saying, lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring, ring with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicing rise high as the listening skies. Let it resound loud as a rolling sea. It goes on and on. And so what the, bro- the brothers put down was something that's almost timeless. The song was sung by African-American soldiers in World War II by civil rights demonstrators in the 1960s. A 15-year-old Martin Luther King Jr. quoted it in his first ever public speech. It was uttered from the steps of the nation's capital by the civil rights icon Reverend Joseph Lowry at President Barack Obama's 2008 inauguration. You can hear it in the score of Spike Lee's film, Do the Right Thing, and read it in the pages of Maya Angelou. It is currently in almost 40 Christian hymnals and crosses religious borders. In 1928, Rabbi Stephen Wise of the Free Synagogue in New York wrote to the Johnson brothers, calling the song the noblest anthem I have ever heard. I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. Could you give me... Oh, the gosh. first verse. You're going to make me sing it? I oh, am, I am. That's Melinda Doolittle, a Tennessee-based singer who came in third place on season six of American Idol. Okay, I can do it. Okay. Lift every voice. Her version of Lift Every Voice and Sing was cited by Beyonce as inspiration for her landmark performance of the song at Coachella in 2018. Landmark because Coachella's audience is largely white. Of liberty. There has never been a time that Doolittle did not know Lift Every Voice and Sing. She recorded an entire album of songs by the Johnson Brothers, 30 of them, with titles like Treat Me Like a Baby Doll, Congo Love Song, and Oh Southland. But Lift Every Voice and Sing is singular among James Weldon Johnson's lyrics. It's just, it's different. It's like he took a second and just sat down and was like, what are we going through right now? Let me just write this. And the other songs, the other poems were a bit more on the entertainment side of things, you know, or they spoke on something lighter or didn't really dive into the religion behind it. And it was different for us in the studio. We saved Lift Every Voice for last. Really? Because I was like, I, for me to be in a place where I can give this the emotional uh, just fortitude that it needs, really. I don't need to be singing, you know, treat me like a baby doll after. Like, I just need this to be the last thing that I get out. Because that last verse, every time, um, it was that the take that you hear is the very first take. um, Because I cried through all the rest of them. 
to sing those words with just me and a piano and really think about them to put the feeling behind them. It just, it just hit me in the most beautiful way. The song has been recorded hundreds of times, maybe more. Besides Beyonce's, there are versions by Melba Moore, Aretha Franklin, B.B. Winans, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, the Boys Choir of Harlem, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, and even a group called the Band of Heathens. There are dozens of different arrangements, a cappella, jazz, acoustic, operatic, and my own favorite, a big band version performed by students at the Berklee College of Music in Boston. I'll tell you, we, we have come, the path, but I'm My name is Desmond Scape Jr. I am a uh, pianist, a vocalist, an artist, musician, chef, lover of life, and of all of God's children, all of Mother Nature's children. And, um, oh, 26 years old. In 2016, Scaife was a student at Berkeley College. Donald Trump had just been elected president, and he and his fellow students, most of whom were voting in their first presidential election, were emotional. They went into the studio and recorded Lift Every Voice and Sing, as arranged by Berkeley professor Larry Watson for Nelson Mandela's release from prison. The recording session, complete with orchestra, chorus, conductor, and scaife as the lead singer, was filmed and can be seen on YouTube. The premise of this video was to showcase what America really looks like and what those who live in America and who operate and make this country run, how we really look, the things that we love, who we are, our politics. Lift Every Voice embodies that because Lift Every Voice is the Black National Anthem. However, it's not a song just about Black people. It's a song about any oppressed people. It's a song about anyone that wants to and can lend their voice to sing. That's why this song is so powerful. It's more than just one people's story. It is born out of our story, but it is available and able for anyone who believes in true justice and liberation. When did you first hear that song? Before I was born. My mother's a pianist and choir director, so she's been playing the song and singing it. It was almost like a lullaby to me. I know the song, I know all four verses, and I always have. To hear that in all of the depth and breadth of these people around me singing that song where it was a uh, uh, it was like heaven's gates was literally opening. I could feel that at two and three years old. Didn't really understand what that feeling meant. In 2016, 2017, after being through some things, after seeing parts of the world, after understanding who I am, my identity, as an artist, as a black man, all of that, looking back on James Weldon Johnson and John's, John Rosamond Johnson, them being at the time 20 and 30-something-year-old men like I am, in early 20th century America, what they're going through writing this song, the lyrics are timeless. doesn't matter what generation you are of an oppressed people. Those lyrics apply to you. Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring. Ring with the harmony of liberty. Okay? Let our rejoicing rise, highs the listening sounds, let it resound, let us roll and see. There is nobody that can't identify with that. If they don't, they're choosing not to. That song is the cornerstone of my experience. I spoke with Scaife in Atlanta, where he was sheltering with family during the pandemic. Normally, he lives in Brooklyn. Two nights before our call, 
Atlanta police shot and killed Raynard Brooks, just a year older than Scaife, at a Wendy's drive-thru. You're in Atlanta now. You had an incident where um, a man was shot, I believe, in the back. Brown, Brown, yes. Yes. I had the back and in the head. Yeah. Uh, an unarmed man in the back yes. and in the head. African-American man. You said this song is a salve. Try to describe for me how any song can be a salve for something as awful as that, as awful as George Lloyd. The names go on and on. Black music has no dichotomy. There's a quote I got from my mentor. You can be happy, you can be sad, you can be melancholy, you can be distorted, you can be frustrated, you can be lazy, you can be hungry, you can be tickled pink, all within one song, because it's the entire Black experience, is all of that. So when I say sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has brought us, sing a song full of the hope that the present has taught us, facing the rising sun of our new day begun, let us march on to victorious one. You don't forget the past, but you use your past. It brought you to your present, and that fuels your future. So you can't forget the lynchings. You can't forget slavery. You can't forget rape. You can't forget police brutality. You can't forget redlining. You can't forget justification. The only way out is back through. So that's how music becomes a salve, because another reason why music is a salve, I'll say, is because of that was the only unmarked territory during colonialism, slavery, and Jim Crow era that black people, that was not a regimented. So every type of emotion could go straight into the music. So that's why for black culture, for black pain, and for every time, for every season, there is a song for it. Which is why I should not have been surprised to hear Lift Every Voice and Sing after the killing of George Floyd. In 2018, Shanna Redmond, a UCLA professor who wrote a book about African-American anthems, said that she began seeing the song associated with the Black Lives Matter movement after the killing of Trayvon Martin in 2012. But in this current moment, as the nation seems to be coming to some kind of new reckoning with racial inequality and violence, can the Black National Anthem still be sung by people who are not Black? Absolutely. That is the premise of the song. That is why John Rosamond Johnson and James Weldon Johnson wrote this song. Because when they wrote this song, they didn't write it necessarily for Black people. Most of the things that Black people have done and have experienced and have participated in their lives have maybe have been for them at the start, initially, and they were the catalyst for change. Because nothing that Black people have done, we said, we cut off to anybody else. Same thing with the music. If it says lift every voice and sing till heaven and earth rings, that's every voice, not just the black voices, but every voice. You see what I mean? That's how I feel about that song. No, anybody can sing it. If you sing it from here, if you know it, soul has no race or background. Doolittle recalled a 2015 concert where she sang this song with the Boston Children's Chorus. To watch this extremely diverse choir of kids learn this song and be in tears singing it together. It just, it, it helped me feel a part of passing it down. And I hope that we can keep passing it down and teaching our kids that even though, even though things can look hard, there's so much hope Mm. and there's something to look forward to. And so I I hope this song is continues to be used for that.
Birgitta Johnson, the USC ethnomusicologist, says even though Lift Every Voice and Sing was written for and first performed by a choir of 500 black children, and even though by 1920 the NAACP adopted it as the Black National Anthem, it was never intended to be exclusive. When the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP, dubbed this the anthem, it was an interracial group. This was an interracial group saying this is our song. And so the idea that non-Black people can't sing it is not in alignment with the originality of who said this was going to be the national anthem, okay? And so when you look back at those sit-ins, and some of those sit-ins were interracial, when you look at Freedom Summer, when you had white young people joining the movement, Jewish people joining the movement, Asian people joining the movement, Latinos joining the movement, they were at those same meetings singing the song then. They were interracial movements. Going back into the suffragettes, you had these interracial connections around politics and the freedom struggle that were interracial. And that song was right there with them singing it. And so the idea that now all of a sudden non-black people can't sing this, it does not make sense. Why would Beyonce sing this at an interracial Coachella crowd if other people couldn't sing it? There are some lyrics to talk about true to our God, true to our native land. That could mean as an African-American, you're talking about Africa. As an American, you could be talking about Native Americans. Just that kind of, that could resonate differently for them. But this idea, wherever your Native land could be, you're true to your God and your Native land, true to these ideas. That was Dr. Brigitte Johnson from the University of South Carolina. I also spoke with singer Melinda Doolittle, who will perform a virtual 4th of July concert with the Cincinnati Pops. You can find her version of Lift Every Voice and Sing on Curb Records. And singer and composer Desmond Scaife Jr., you can read a print version of this story by me at www.religionunplugged.com. That's all for this week's episode. If you missed any portion, you can stream us online at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, read our show notes, sign up for the newsletters, and explore the archives. We are also a podcast. To subscribe, just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, can I ask a favor? Will you leave a rating and a review to help others find us? I want to thank MC Yogi for our theme music, additional music in this week's episode by Blue Dot Sessions, and to learn more about the renditions of Lift Every Voice that appeared in this week's show, check out our show notes. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and this week's episode's producers, including Kevin McCarthy, Kimberly Winston, and the team at The Spiritual Edge. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week.